All right, we're going to be in Ezekiel chapter 14 and 15 tonight. Um, still working our way through the section of Ezekiel, primarily focused on prophecies against Jerusalem and uh, uh, ultimately for God's judgment there. So as we, as we look, he's going to kind of wrap things up. There's a, a little bit of a, I don't know if it's a detour that we're going to be taking in chapter 16. Chapter 14 and 15 is kind of a, a summary of, of what's gone on and how we got to where we are. And it begins with a group of elders coming before Ezekiel. So if we remember, Ezekiel, he only comes out of his house when it's time to speak. So if the Lord gives him something to speak, Ezekiel comes out and he delivers that word. If he hasn't, then he doesn't. In this case, you have a group of elders there in the refugee camp who are coming to Ezekiel, and they're looking for a word. They, they are looking for direction. They want to know, uh, you know, what, what does the Lord, what is it that the Lord wants for them? We won't really uh, see their precise question, but we will see God's direction to Ezekiel. As he, uh, as he entertains these elders that come before him. So it begins in verse 1. Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts. So we have, remember, the remnant is a group of people that the Lord brought out of Israel. The rest of the nation is going to be destroyed. The people are going to continue to rebel until there's nothing left, till the temple's destroyed, the city's destroyed, and nothing is there. But there's a remnant that's been brought back to the refugee camps outside of Babylon that God is going to, from that remnant, build up the generation that's going to return and rebuild Jerusalem. <clears throat> so it is a opportunity for those who are there at the beginning of the exile to first recognize their own failure and repent and then pour their energies, their efforts into the generation that's with them, that's coming up. Because they're going to stay slaves. They're not leaving. They're going to be slaves until the day they die. But their kids are going to get another opportunity. Their kids have a chance to go back into the land. We saw the same thing, right, when we, when we talk about Kadesh Barnea. The children of Israel come into Kadesh Barnea and the Lord saying, enter into the land and wherever you put the sole of your foot, I'll give it to you. And the children of Israel were afraid and they said, we can't do it. There's giants in the land. We're not able. So God took that generation into the wilderness, right? And they did 40 years in the wilderness until that generation had passed and the children had grown. And then he brought them back to Kadesh Barnea to see if they would enter into the land then. So that generation was ready. And the point behind that generation being ready is that the adults who lived through their own failure passed on to the next generation what they needed to succeed. So when they come to Kadesh Barnea, they're ready. And in fact, when they go to Jericho, and you have the first battle with Joshua, right? And the Lord tells them what to do, which was probably not what any of us would have done for a battle plan, right? If you're thinking of a battle plan, you're not thinking about marching around the city, 
You're not thinking about just being quiet, marching around the city in the seventh, you know, doing it once every day. Seven days, seventh day, you're going to do it multiple times. Then you're going to shout and blow the trumpet and the walls will fall down. That would not have been your plan. But the children from the generation that failed and the efforts that their parents poured into them prepared them for radical obedience as they continued their walk with the Lord, as God brought them into the land. Now you have the same thing at the exile. You have a long history, 490 years of disobedience. God takes them into exile, and he says, okay, you're going to be in exile for 70 years. So you're going to be here in exile, but, but the ones who are in the refugee camps, that is where I'm going to pull the remnant who will rebuild what's been destroyed. And so the same thing. But in order for them to do what's necessary to prepare a generation to rebuild, they've got problems they got to deal with first. What do you have to teach the next generation if your heart is full of idols? What do you have to equip? You don't, you, you don't have anything. And so they left in slavery and they left their idols at home. They had the idolatry in the temple and all that stuff's gone, but the idols are still in their hearts. And so when these elders come before Ezekiel to inquire of the Lord, the Lord, the word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel and God says they have those idols in their hearts still. Their heart is full of idolatry. Look what he says. These men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Here's the idea. In scripture, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the children of Israel were to take the word of God and bind it on their foreheads and on the back of their hands. Now, they took that as uh, something that they should, should do, so they actually put little scrolls in the boxes they tied on their hands. It's called phylacteries. They put on their foreheads. But the, the intent is, whatever you do is going to be grounded in the Word of God, and whatever you, whatever, however you think, however you perceive your, your world and the things around you is going to be governed by the Word of God because the Word of God is the headlights. It's the frontlets. But here, these guys have idols in their hearts, and they, rather than having vision for what's around them, their vision is marred. They have a stumbling block in front of their faces. So rather than having the Word of God, which illuminates what's going on around them, just picture they've got a blindfold on that they don't know they have on. And the blindfold is because of the idols that are in their heart. So these, this is God's uh, description of what's going on with them. And so the Lord says, should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? The Bible teaches us that if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. It means if I have a cherished sin that I have elevated in my life that, that has taken a... a um, is taking my affection from God to this sin, the Lord saying, I, I can't hear you. I can't hear you because you have elevated sin, iniquity in your life, and you're not dealing with it. So the, Lord's, the Lord is saying there will be 
a break in our ability to communicate with one another. Until what? Until we reach a place of confession or repentance. Until we recognize I, there's something wrong. There's, there's something limiting. I'm not hearing from the Lord. I don't feel God's presence or whatever the thing. And so the scripture would tell us over and over and over again, right, that we should examine ourselves. Look inside and say, am I good? I was, I was talking with a brother this week, and, and we were talking about the idea of memorial stones. And one of the things the, the Word of God talks about, whenever the children of Israel overcame some great event or uh, God delivered them in a radical way, the Lord would tell them to build a memorial stone. So they'd make a pile of stones. And the idea behind the pile of stones was so, so that when their children would ask them, hey, Dad, what's that pile of stones there for? You'll remember God's deliverance and you'll do what? Teach your children, which is passing on the things we've learned about God to who? The next generation, preparing that next generation. And it's so important for us to have memorial stones in our life because then I can come to that date. Maybe it's a date. Maybe it's a, an event, whatever. And every time we come back around to those memorial stones, I can ask myself, where am I in my walk with the Lord today? Am I better or worse? Am I progressing or, or am I drifting? And then we can, in that self-examination, right, we, we have an opportunity to be confronted with where we're at, and it is a way, it's a discipline to keep us on track. So here these guys, the Lord is going to speak through them, through Ezekiel to them, saying, hey, there's... Your heart is not with me. Isaiah 29, 13. The Lord speaking to the Israel, the, the northern kingdom, <coughs> and in a warning for the southern kingdom, which is following as we read Ezekiel. Here's what Isaiah said. The Lord said, This people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips. You guys know the rest. But their heart is far from me. And this is what, this is exactly what the Lord is bringing to Ezekiel about these elders. While their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. They, they, they have no fear of the Lord. What does the Bible tell us about the fear of the Lord? It's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of an understanding, a comprehension. That the fear of the Lord is not something we, we should have to be taught by men. It's something that should come as a result of us knowing who God is. If we know God, that's, that's natural. And so he's saying, look, they're, they're, this, this is something they're trying to go through the motions. Here's how we're supposed to act. Here's how we're supposed to look. We should go to the prophet and talk to the prophet about what does God want us to do. But their hearts are focused on the idols they left behind. So this is a struggle they have. Jesus talked about this. <laughs> Matthew 15, verse 8, it says... This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So we have the same issue with the scribes and the Pharisees at the time of Christ, right? Where Jesus, quoting out of Isaiah, is, is letting them know. 
about their own hypocrisy. So as these guys come, what's going on is the Lord is exposing their sin. It's important that we have our sin exposed because then we can do something about it, right? If it's, if it's always hidden, it's one of the loving things that God does. He lets you get caught. He lets your sins be found out, right? And so here, he is exposing these things to Ezekiel uh, before, before these elders. Now look what he says. He says, verse 4, Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Anyone of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are estranged from me through their idols. So he says, when you come, I'm going to treat you like idolatrous people. You come to the prophet to, to receive a word from the Lord and your heart is full of idolatry. I'm going to judge you as I would an idolatrous people. For what purpose? It's not just to be mean or to bring judgment. It's so that he can affect change in the hearts of Israel. That this is not okay. Why, why do parents discipline children? It's not because we hate them. It's because we want them to to uh, uh, understand the way in which they ought to walk. We want them to have the best life they can have, which sometimes means that they get disciplined for the choices that they make. And so here the Lord is saying, look, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to deal with you. If you come with your heart full of idolatry, I'm going to deal with you as an idolatrous people so that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel that are estranged from me. So there's a, there's a movement within the remnant to, right now they're wanting to seek God, but they're wanting to seek God without repentance. So uh, we, we, we know, we've, we're in sin, our nation was judged, we were taken as slaves, but we have not confessed, we've not changed our direction. And so this, this desire for idolatry is still within our hearts. We are still stumbling in regard to that. And as a result, the way they see their world is through idolatrous eyes. The way they experience the things they go through is all through the, the, the rose-colored glasses of their own idolatry. And that changes our perception. Do you know that if you regard iniquity in your heart, if you're walking in a sin that you refuse to deal with, confess, or repent from, that that's going to change the way you deal with all the people around you? It's going to change how you see your world? It's going to change the things that offend you and the things that don't? And it begins, just like the Lord is saying to these guys, to put a stumbling block before your eyes. Like holding your hand in front of your eyes and trying to see. And so the Lord wants them to understand that these things need to be heard. And he's going to encourage them. He's going to exhort them to repentance. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul writes in verse 9, he says this. He says, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols. 
So he's saying to the Thessalonians, oh man, we're excited. And he's talking about their repentance. What was the exciting thing? That you turned to God. You turned away from idolatry and you turned to the Lord to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath that is to come. So this is the attitude that the Lord is looking for. So he says in verse 6, as he's speaking to Ezekiel, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols. Repent. The idolatry that is in their heart needs to be repented of, confessed and left. Turn away your faces. That's as simple a definition as we can get. Turn away your faces from all your abominations. Don't don't turn your face toward them. Turn your face away. What the people were doing was turning their back to God and their face toward idols. And what God is asking of them is to turn your back to the idols and your face toward me. Repent. For anyone of the house of Israel, the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who separates himself from me, taking his idols into his heart and putting a stumbling block of iniquity before his face, and comes to the prophet to consult me through him, I, the Lord, will answer him myself. And the answer is, I will set my face against you. Now, nobody wants that. Nobody wants God to set his face against you. So the Lord says, how do we do it? How, what do we need to do? We need to, one, repent, change our direction. Two, we need to return to the Lord. Any who have separates himself from me. There's a separation. What does it say in, in, the, in the book of Revelation? We talk about the church at Ephesus. And the church at Ephesus did all these things right. They were heretic hunters. They, their doctrine was pretty solid. They did all these good things. But the Lord said, nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. So, the Lord says, you need to remember from where you have fallen. Repent and return. Or else, I will take your lampstand away. Now, if we want to look historically, there is no Ephesus today. The church of Ephesus does not exist. The second church in the letters to the churches is, is the church of Smyrna. Do you know that the church of Smyrna is still there? The church of Smyrna is the persecuted church. And the Lord said to the church of Smyrna, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And though the name of the city has been changed, it's, it's under uh, Islamic um, um, control. The name's been changed, but it's the same place. And it's still there. That lampstand's not gone. What's the importance? What's the difference? Well, you have faithfulness on one hand, trusting in the Lord, and a, a, a lack at some point of repentance on the other hand. A lack of repentance. Unwillingness to return to the Lord. <clears throat> and if they don't repent, what is the, what is, what's the consequence? The Lord says, um, I will turn my face against you. 
and I will make you a sign. Now that doesn't seem good either. I don't want to be a sign for all the other people who haven't paid attention. He says, I'll make you a sign and a byword, and I'll cut you off from the midst of the people. So the Lord says, I'll set my face against you. I'll make an example of you. That's another way of saying I'll make you a sign. I'll make an example of you for others, and I'll cut you off from the midst of the people. So here, these people are part of the remnant from which is going to spring the people who are going to go back into the land. But the Lord is letting them know, you could just die here a slave and not be any part of what's going on. You have that choice. Or you can repent and return. And then God can still use you. Even though you, as an individual, are never going to know what it's like to rebuild Jerusalem, that's a job for your, your kids. You may not know that, but you get to be a part of it by being an example to that next generation. By being an example to those who are coming up. And for what purpose? Look what the Lord said there at the end of verse 8. So that you shall know, I am the Lord. They will come to an understanding. Now he's going to talk about the prophet. Uh, He says in verse 9, And if the prophet is deceived and speaks a word, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet and will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from the midst of my people Israel. So you had false prophets. You have prophets who were not really into it and were delivering false words. You have an example of this in the book of Kings where the Lord says, what shall we do? What shall we do? And in the midst of his counsel. And, uh, and so a lying spirit is put into the voice of the prophets. These are the false prophets, the prophets that are in disobedience to God. And they have no, they're not hearing, they're not seeing, they're not knowing. God says, I'm going to, I'll put the wrong word in him. And so they would, they would give a word that was opposite to what God's word had done. So what is he saying to the prophet, the deceiver? He's going to be deceived. And what's going to be the result of that will be destruction. I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from the midst of my people Israel. And they shall bear their punishment. The punishment of the prophet and the punishment of the inquirer will be alike. So remember, what's the, what's the issue? The inquirer has idolatry in his heart. So you have the same comparison being made of the false prophet, someone who presumes to speak for God, who has idol in his heart. The Lord said he's never going to speak truth. He won't. There's no way <clears throat> that the false prophet, whose heart is turned against God, is going to speak truth. Rather, the Lord says... He will be deceived, and he will bring destruction. For what purpose? Look at verse 11. That the house of Israel may no more go astray from me, nor defile themselves any more with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people, and I may be their God, declares the Lord God. So what the Lord is looking for from them is faithfulness. We've talked about this a number of times. I know a lot of times people come to the Old Testament and they struggle with this concept of of God's judgment but when your husband or wife cheats on you you don't struggle with the attitude you'll have the same attitude God does 
which is he does not, there's no culture under the stars that glorifies unfaithfulness. Does the Lord want faithfulness? Yeah. Yeah. Does he speak against the unfaithful? He does. You want a a little study in it? Read Ezekiel 16. It's coming. About the unfaithfulness of the people toward God. What is his purpose? Same as the prophet Hosea. The prophet Hosea is an illustration of what the people have done to God. You remember Hosea? Go marry a prostitute. He goes and marries a prostitute. She bails on him. She runs off after guys with more money and and then eventually nobody wants to take care of her anymore. She's uh, living on the street and the Lord says to Hosea, now go get her back. Bring her home. The illustration is that's what God does. But he's not going to pretend unfaithfulness is okay. Unfaithfulness is, is not okay. It's, it's not. And so the people, the charge to the people, the desire of God is that he would be their God and they would be his people, that we would be faithful, that, that the word of God declares great is his faithfulness. It's my faithfulness that lacks. And so God in, his, in, in the wisdom of his purpose has bestowed upon you and I here in the new covenant, his Holy Spirit, to empower us to be the people we need to be. He wants us to be with him. He wants us to be faithful, and that's his goal. His goal for them is not that they would defile themselves, not that they would be destroyed, not that they would go astray, that they would cheat on him. His desire is that they would be faithful to him. So God wants to eliminate this spiritual departure. And he wants to establish with them a lasting relationship. That's pretty much what everybody wants in a relationship. And so this is his challenge um, to Ezekiel. Verse 12, he goes on. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man. When a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut it off from man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would only deliver their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord. So here's what he's saying. He's going to talk now about what sometimes we call in Revelation the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? War, famine, pestilence, death. You, you have <clears throat> these same things in the Old Testament. It's famine, pestilence, the sword, uh, and, and the wild beasts. But the idea is the same. It's part of the hand of God's judgment, his wrath being poured out on a nation. And so he's saying when judgment comes, when the calamities begin... Someone else's righteousness is not going to deliver you. You might say, oh, my my father or my uncle or my aunt are such righteous people. They love the Lord. They they follow the Lord. That's good for them. But that's not going to help you. And to emphasize it, he uses three names. Now, we should. One of these names ought to to cause us a, a 
to ask a question, if we think about it, he's going to say, okay, Noah, Daniel, and Job. So Noah, that's a flood, right? That's, that's a long time ago. And Job, that's, that's probably a long time ago. So Noah is before there is a nation. He's not a Jew. Uh, Job, he's not a, an Israelite. Uh, he's a Gentile. And then you have one in the middle. What's his name? Daniel. Isn't Daniel a contemporary of Ezekiel? Daniel went in the first exile, the first group of guys that went into slavery. Ezekiel went in the second. There is a total of three. Separated, let's just roughly say they're separated by 11 years. It's, It's not quite that, but we'll just make it simple. So you have Daniel 11 years later, you have um, Ezekiel 11 years later, destruction, total destruction of Jerusalem. Okay? So Daniel's been there before Ezekiel. Then Ezekiel goes, but the book of Daniel's probably not written at the time that, that Ezekiel is writing this. How did Daniel get in the list? So let's think about it like this. You're in a refugee camp. Bunch of slaves, Jewish slaves. And let's say, 11 years ago, they took a bunch of Jewish slaves over and one of those guys became the number two most powerful man in the nation. He just happens to also be Jewish. Do you think you know that? You're living in a refugee camp outside of Babylon. Do you think you know that the number two guy in Babylon, his name is Daniel? Do you think you know about the righteousness of Daniel? I think you do. I think that the stories of Daniel were already circulating at that point because here you are a slave. You got no, no heroes. Who's your heroes? What are you going to look back and you're, you're, maybe you're thinking of Noah. Maybe you might think of Job. Who's the hero for you that day? And that day, if there was a guy among your people who had elevated himself as a result of his commitment to God and the wisdom that God had poured out upon him and the way that he lives his life, you don't think you'd know his name? I guarantee those people knew who Daniel was. Even though the book of Daniel's not written yet, even though that's going to come later on, Those guys at a refugee camp outside of Babylon, I promise you, find a refugee camp someplace, right, where where people get put into a refugee camp. And then the nation in which that refugee camp is in have one of those refugees become the vice president. Now, maybe it's easier today because Facebook, somebody will post it, but I promise you that word is getting to the refugees, right? They're understanding what's going on. Now, what is it that God wants these people to know? It has nothing to do with Daniel's righteousness can't save you. Noah's righteousness can't save you. The Bible tells us Noah was righteous. Did it stop the flood? The flood still came. The Bible tells us Job was righteous. Did it stop the heartache in Job's life? The Bible tells us Daniel was righteous. Did it stop him from being a slave? 
No. So the Lord is saying, look, this is judgment. This is how God's judgment works. When his judgment is poured out on a nation, it's time for God to judge this nation <clears throat> for her wickedness for 490 years. He's going to say, okay, this is coming. And though you're righteous, does God know how to deliver the righteous? For sure he does. He's, he's de he, did he deliver Noah? Yeah. Did he deliver Job? Sure. Did he deliver Daniel? Yeah, so we, we see God's ability to deliver the righteous, but that's not going to help everybody else. What will help you? You don't get a relationship with God as a result of the, your parents' relationship or your friend's relationship or your wife's relationship. How do you have a relationship with God? You have one. You have one. So as he... As he goes through this section, he wants us to understand the righteous will not deliver the wicked from judgment. Now, we know that there was a time, right, when Abraham pleads for, with the Lord about judgment coming on Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, will you destroy the nation if there's, if there's 50, 40, 30, 20, 10, you remember? And the Lord says, nope, for the sake of 10, for the sake of 20, for the sake of 30, the Lord whittling him down, he says, I won't destroy it because of the righteous. But in this case, the Lord is saying the judgment is going to come. This judgment is coming. So can God deliver the righteous? Yes, he can. Just like he delivered Noah, right? Did Noah drown? No, he was delivered. So he wants them to understand this. So even these three men... Noah, Daniel, Job, were in it. They would be delivered. They would deliver their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. If I cause wild beasts to pass through the land, and they ravage it, and made it desolate so that no one would pass through because of the beasts, even if three, these three men were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the land would be desolate. Or if I bring the sword upon the land and say, let a sword pass through the land, and I cut off uh, from it man and beast, though these three men were in it, as I live, declares the Lord, they would del deliver neither sons nor daughters, but they alone would be delivered. If I send pestilence into the land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood to cut off from it man and beast, even if Noah Daniel and Job were in it as I live, declares the Lord God. They would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. Because the Bible declares this. Ezekiel is going to tell us about it in chapter 18. In Ezekiel 18, 20, it says, The soul that sins will die. That everyone stands on their own account. The son will not suffer. For the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. This is what Ezekiel wrote. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself. And the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. So the deliverance is not something you get. What th I just want you to think for a minute like how they were thinking. How did they think? Why did they think they would be delivered? Why did they think none of these things could happen to them? Well, we're God's favorite people. We're, this is a nation of Israel. We're God's chosen people. There's nothing bad's going to happen to us. 
And the, the point that the Lord is making is, if you're righteous, I'll deliver you. If you're wicked, you go through judgment. This is how this works. This is how these things will be accomplished. So he wants them to understand that this is the result of God's judgment upon the nation. And thus says the Lord God, verse 21, how much more will I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, the sword, famine, wild beast, and pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast. So I would say that this description, the four disastrous acts of judgment and the four horsemen of, of the apocalypse in Revelation chapter 6 are the same. They're, they're not described the same way, but they're the same purpose. They are instruments of God's judgment poured out in Revelation on a Christ-rejecting world. And he, here on an uh, unfaithful nation that had turned its back on its God was unfaithful in their relationship to the Lord. And so we come to verse 22 and 23, which which really is the focus for these guys sitting before Ezekiel. And he says, but behold, some survivors will be left. So every time we look at God's judgment, there is always, always a remnant. It's not total destruction. It is God's ability to deliver the righteous, the next generation. He's laying out this idea for them. He says, some survivors will be left in it, Sons and daughters who will be brought out. Behold, when they come out to you and you see their ways and their deeds, you will be consoled. So remember I told you there's three exiles. Daniel was in the first one. Ezekiel's in the second one. The third one, the last one, will be when the entire nation is destroyed. And we'll, we will read about it in Ezekiel when, the, when that group of slaves comes to the refugee camp. And they tell the people in the refugee camp about what happened in Jerusalem. And the Lord is saying through the words that he's giving to Ezekiel that Ezekiel's giving to the elders, he says, when they come to you and they tell you about what happened, you will be consoled. You'll be consoled for the disaster that was brought on Jerusalem and for all that I have brought upon it. They will console you when you see their ways and their deeds. So this group, the final group that's going to come into the refugee camp is going to come with words of God's judgment upon the wicked, those who were unfaithful, and they're going to come with an attitude of repentance to the refugee camp, uh, an attitude that says that God is, was right for what he did. We see that when we, when we look in Revelation and we see the great white throne judgment. The Bible declares righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. There's never a time when God judges where someone, doesn't, where someone says, oh, that's not right. The people that are judged, the ones who stand before him, will declare righteous and true. You're right. You're right. This is who I am. This is what has been inside of me. They will console you when, they, when you see their ways and their deeds, and you will know that I have not done without cause all that I have done. And you will know. So here Ezekiel's telling them the cause. The cause of the idolatry, the unfaithfulness, the attitude of the heart, 
And when the final group of refugees come, they're going to get their final word of confirmation that what God's been speaking to them through Ezekiel is true. So that 70 years pass and Nehemiah gets word that there's some people trying to rebuild Jerusalem, but they're not able to do it. And he calls for the remnant to go. That there will be a group of people who were made ready, who will answer the call of Nehemiah and go back and rebuild Jerusalem. That's the last, Ezra and Nehemiah is the last statement historically from God about the nation of Israel. After they rebuild, the temple's rebuilt, and you have uh, Ezra and Nehemiah that takes place, uh, the people are back into the land, then you enter into 400 years of silence till John the Baptist. 400 years of nothing, no peeps, no prophets, until a crazy man comes walking out of the wilderness one day and says, prepare ye the, the way of the Lord. There is one coming after me whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. He will baptize you in water and fire. And so you have this call that, that is coming. So this is the history, the exile, 70 years, Go with Ezra and Nehemiah, that that prepared remnant, the children of those who went into slavery, who are now prepared, the ones who were children are old men, and their children are are children, and they're going to go back into the land. And the number is going to be small. It's not a big number that's going to go back. It's a small number that's going to, to go back to the land. But the point is, the Lord wants them to know, to realize that that when you hear that final group come through, you'll realize my judgment wasn't for nothing. It was not just because, you know, God had a bad day and decided to take it out on Israel. But rather, it was for Israel's unfaithfulness. Now, we're going to run through chapter 15 real quick, just eight verses. But as we look at chapter 15, it's going to give us an illustration. So he's kind of laid out for us the... The, the words, here's what God's saying. Now he's going he's gonna to give us an illustration of that. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood? The vine branch that is among the trees of the forest, is wood taken from it to make anything? Do people take a peg from it to hang any vessel on it? Behold, it's given to the fire for fuel when the fire has consumed both ends of it in the middle of its chart. Is it useful for anything? Behold, when it was whole, it was used for nothing. How much less, when the fire has consumed it and it is charred, can it ever be used for anything? So he's asking a question about the wood from a vine, grapevine. Nobody uses the wood from a grapevine for much. <clears throat> so he's saying nobody's going to build a house with it. Nobody's th- That wood mostly that's gathered up is just burned in the fire. And when he's talking about the youth, youth usefulness, the usefulness of the vine, what he wants them to understand is that the usefulness, that vine, which is always a picture of Israel, was put in the fire in 597. It started in the fire then, 
And then it's going to go through one conquering, two conquerings, three conquerings. And when it's all said and done, it's been burned on both ends and it's charred in the middle. What do you do with it? The point that the Lord is making is that this nation, this is coming to an end. And I'm going to start over after 70 years of exile. You're not going to save the wood out of the fire. The wood is going into the fire and it's not going to be used for anything but to be burned up. There is nothing good about it. There was no, no redeeming the wood. The nation was no good. And the nation will be... Uh, will start again at the end of 70 years. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I have given the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will set my face against them, and though they escape from the fire, the fire shall yet consume them. And you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. I will make the land desolate, because they have acted faithlessly, <clears throat> declares the Lord. They have acted faithlessly. I found this quote I wanted to share with you. Implicit in the parable is the prophet's response to those who imagined that Israel, as the vine of the Lord, was indestructible. Oh, she might be cut down, they thought, but it was only a temporary setback. Before long, it would start to grow again, and it would shoot again, and Israel would flourish like she had in days gone by. Such naive optimism was the object of Ezekiel's condemnation. Israel and Jerusalem were finished. They ne there was never going to be another Solomon. There was never going to be another David. The monarchy was never going to rise to power. In the history after Ezra and Nehemiah, they're going to need help from a variety of people because of the Greeks. Antiochus Epiphanes is going to pass through Israel and want to fight with them every time they go. So they're going to reach out to an upstart nation called Rome. And Rome's going to come and help establish them so that they, they don't have to have a presence of the Roman army there in Israel. They're, they're there when somebody else shows up too, aren't they? The Romans. The same Romans they asked for help for against the Greeks. The same Greeks they asked for help for from the Medo-Persian. You just keep going back. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. They're going to go through all of those things, but they'll never be the nation they were because the king of Israel is coming. The, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the son of David, he's coming. They're not going to find him because all their sons of David were gone. They're, they're gone. The king's gone. The king line, kingly line is, is not eradicated, but there's certainly not anybody being birthed and recycling as kings. Who's the king when Christ comes? Herod. Is he from a line of David? I'll make life easy for you. No, he's not. So you have, you have this distortion in the monarchy. It never is established again because 
from the exile, the slavery, the remnant coming back, rebuilding Jerusalem, preparing Jerusalem for the return of her king that will be rejected, provide salvation for the world, but he's coming again. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's coming again. There will not be another monarchy where you're going to have somebody that is going to fulfill that role. The Bible talks about a time when a pseudo-Christ, someone who, who is trying to take that role, the Antichrist, is going to come on the scene, but he can't be Jesus Christ. The King of kings and Lord of lords will return for the land. It's called the kingdom of Christ. Revelation tells, I want to say, seven, eight, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. That day will come. That's when the king returns. That's how the history flows. That's how the exile prepares the remnant to rebuild a place for the Messiah to come, to be rejected, crucified, provide salvation for the world, and then return again. And we live in those days. They were in the exile. Maybe we're at the end. Maybe in our time we see the king return. Wouldn't that be a glorious sight? That'd be a great day. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to study your word. I thank you for the book of Ezekiel, the challenges, Lord, that you lay out to us through your word. I pray, God, that, uh, that we would be challenged to know, to grow, to understand, to comprehend with all the saints what is the height and breadth and width and depth of the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, help us grow daily in our comprehension and understanding May the scripture take life before us and may we uh, grow daily in our understanding of who you are, Lord. May we make application. If we have idols in our heart, God, may we repent, confess, repent, be restored, return to the Lord. And he will take you. The word declares God, I pray that, that we would be a people prepared. As we look around us, maybe in our own <clears throat> time of exile, and we say, maybe, maybe my generation is done, but there's a generation coming up. And we need to teach them the things we've learned, the mistakes we've made, the things we understand. We need to pour that in so that that generation would be ready to stand. God, we pray that you be glorified and magnified in us. As we put our eyes on you, Lord, we pray that you would have your way within us, and we give you all the praise and the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.